And please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, where we are continuing our sermon series in the New Testament book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, and I I promise, you may not believe me, but I promise that we're not going to move through the whole book one verse at a time, Um, but we are just going to be primarily looking at verse 4 today, and I I believe that you will find that this one verse has more than enough, more than enough for us to consider and think about uh, today. And last week we were uh, introduced to this magnificent section in Ephesians 1, verse 3 through verse 14. And I mentioned to you how verse 3 to verse 14, while it contains many different sentences in our English translation, in the original Greek text, it's one long sentence of over 200 words without any punctuation or stop. And I'm going to also remind you that I I said I'm going to read all of this section, all of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 each week as we move through this passage little bit by little bit. And, And this is because I want us to both see... The theology and the truth in each verse, but I also want us to have the whole context of this passage in our minds too. That I want us to see the, the, the doctrine and the doxology in each individual verse, but I also want us to see how this, this whole passage, it really is, as one commentator put it, like a snowball rolling downhill, picking up speed, picking up mass as it goes down to its glorious um, conclusion. So we want to look at the, the individual trees in this passage, but we don't want to miss the forest. We don't want to miss that context. And so I'll read the whole passage. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, sufficient, life-giving word. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. And so we're going to be looking at verse 4, and I want us to consider verse 4 under four headings, four questions. The first question is, what did God do? What did God do? Second, when did God do it? Third, why did God do it? And the fourth question is, why does it matter? 
Obviously, it matters if God's Word says that it matters if it's God's truth, but, but why does it practically matter? What, what, what benefit is it to you? Why should it matter to you this next week? Let's say Wednesday afternoon at 3.30 p.m. Now, I have no idea what's going to happen at that time, but why should it matter this next week when you reflect on this? So first, what did God do? Let's look at verse 3 in the first part of verse 4 to make sure we get the context. We looked at verse 3 last week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And there's a lot there. We talked a lot about that last week. But then look at the beginning of verse 4. Even as he chose us in him. So what did God do? He, God the Father, chose us in him, in Christ. Now, this is known as the doctrine of election. And that word in our English translation that's translated chose is the the verb form of the Greek word eklektos. Eklektos. To elect. Election. It's an ordinary Greek term which means to elect, to select, to choose something or someone. So God the Father chose us. Okay, who is this us? Well, we know from looking at verses 1 and 2 in Ephesians, that Paul's writing to the, the saints and believers in Christ in and around Ephesus. So the us, saints and believers. The us is Christians. Those who have been saved from their sins by Jesus' saving work, namely his life, death, and resurrection. So here in Ephesians 1, the, the object of God's choice is believers. Even you, dear Christian. So look again at verse 4. God the Father chose us in Christ. The doctrine of election. So a more formal definition of election is, election is an act of God before creation in which God the Father chooses some people to be saved. Not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. So this means God the Father chose or elected us to be saved by Jesus' saving work according to God's purpose, according to God's sovereign will, according to his great love for us. This means your salvation was not based upon some foreseen condition that you and some other people meet while others fail to meet it. See, some people believe that God's choice is based on God looking down through the corridors of time before, and before creation, seeing who would believe in him and then choosing those who would believe to be his own. But that's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what Paul teaches in Ephesians 1. And we're going to see this as we move through it. See, your salvation was based solely on God the Father's free, gracious, and loving choice. Not on anything you did or would do. Paul says in verse 4 that our election is in him. That is, our election is in Christ. Our salvation is through Christ's saving work for us. Our salvation is in Christ and not in us. Not in ourselves. Not in anything that we would do. Not in our 
best efforts, not in our good works. As someone once said, we do not contribute anything to our salvation other than the sin which made it necessary. As Richard Phillips explains, there is no conflict, therefore, between the doctrine of election and salvation by faith in Christ. For God elected that Christ would die for the sins of the people and that the elect would have faith in Christ and thus be saved. Now, I'm aware that as soon as, as I say the word election, that, that some of us think, oh, Richard, I don't believe in election. But, but you do. But you do. Now, we may, we may differ on how we define election, but you see, if you desire to be a biblical Christian who knows the Bible, who believes the Bible, who, who loves the Bible as the Word of God, then you have a doctrine of election because your Bible says a lot about election. It's unmistakable. You see, every Bible-believing Christian believes in election, but the question is, in what kind of election do we believe? The question is, you know, what do we understand Ephesians 1 to be teaching us about who God is? about how he saves his people. Now, there's um, a well-known theologian, pastor theologian, who passed away recently named R.C. Sproul. And whenever he was a young student pastor, he wrote a note to himself, and he, and he placed it on his desk in, in a place where he, he, he would see it all the time. And here's what the note said to himself in all caps. You are required to believe, to preach, and to teach what the Bible says is true, not what you want the Bible to say is true. So, before I go any further, I want to make a commitment to you, and I want to request that you make a commitment to me. So, my commitment to you is that I will endeavor with all of my heart to, to believe and to preach and to teach what the Bible says is true, and not what I want the Bible to say is true. Does sound like a good deal? It's a good deal for your pastor to make. That's my commitment to you. I ask you to commit to me, regardless of your church background, regardless of the presuppositions you bring into this sanctuary about Presbyterians, election, predestination, some guy named John Calvin. I ask you, regardless of all that, that you commit to me that you will be willing to believe what the Bible says is true and not what you want the Bible to say is true. I think that's a fair, that's a fair request. It's a fair commitment from me. That's a fair request of me to you. Now, there are better men than I who do not agree with what I'm going to preach today and in the weeks to come. Better men. Don't agree with me. However, I... The rest of your pastors, your elders, your deacons are not the first people to interpret the Bible the way that I'm going to preach it. Now you may think, well, Richard, I know that John Calvin taught this doctrine of election. And yes, John Calvin did teach it. And so did Jonathan Edwards and Martin Luther, Thomas Aquinas and Augustine, just to name a few. But that's not why I believe it. And that's not why you should embrace it. See, these men taught the doctrine of election because Paul taught the doctrine of election in God's Word. See, remember, Ephesians is not some letter that some guy wrote to some people a really long time ago. It's the very Word of God. 
And I want you to look at what's coming up in Ephesians 1. So if you have your Bibles open, you're going to see there's many words and phrases which make plain God's initiation and his sovereign loving choice of his people for salvation. It's all coming up in the next few verses. So, for example, if you look at the the last little phrase of of verse 4, we're going to look at it next week, but leading into verse 5, Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, it says, In love, in love, I don't want you to miss that, in love, he predestined us, predetermined the destination, predestined. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In love, God predestined us according to the purpose of his will, his sovereign initiative, his sovereign, gracious, merciful, loving choice. Later, in in verse 9, we read, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So once again, this is God the Father's will, his purpose. It's what he sets forth. Then later in verse 11, we read, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So once again, predestined according to his purpose, according to God's will. But it's not just in Ephesians 1 where Paul says this. Listen to how Paul opens his letter to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Paul says, we know that God's chosen you because you believe the gospel for your salvation. And the only way anyone would believe the gospel is if God had chosen them. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul writes, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you Brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That God chose you to be saved. Now, in Paul, he's not the only apostle to teach the doctrine of election. Peter also did. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, those who are elect, who are chosen, Those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. So Paul's writing to Christians in all these places. And these Christians are the elect, chosen by God the Father to be saved, according to his purpose, according to his sovereign and gracious will. And then in 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 10, Peter writes, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So we all, every Bible-believing Christian has a doctrine of election. It just matters what we believe it means. It's not only Paul and Peter who taught the doctrine of election. Jesus also taught it in many places. One of those is in John chapter 6, verses 64 and 65. Jesus says, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 
Listen to how Richard Phillips explains, or R.C. Sproul explains this. The meaning of Jesus' words is clear. No human being can possibly come to Christ unless something happens that makes it possible for him to come. That necessary condition, Jesus declares, is that it is granted him by the Father. Jesus is saying here that the ability to come to him is a gift from God. Man does not have the ability in of himself to come to Christ. God must do something first. The God the Father must choose or elect us to be saved according to his purpose, according to his sovereign will, according to his great love for us. So this means your salvation was not based upon some foreseen condition that you and some other people would meet while others failed to meet. Your salvation was based solely on God the Father's free, gracious, and loving choice. And this is not just something we see in the New Testament. The doctrine of election is also very clearly in many places in the Old Testament. I'll give you just one of those. It is um, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So the doctrine of election that we find in the Old Testament and that we find in Jesus' teaching and that we find in the, the letters of the apostles makes it plain the truth that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You're a Christian. And you may say, but Richard, I remember making a choice to trust in Jesus. I remember making a choice to believe the gospel. I remember making a choice to surrender my life to Christ. I remember making a choice that I was going to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. Richard, I remember doing that. I remember where I was. I know you did. I did too. I know where I was. When it was, it was a Thursday night. Up in my dorm room in Brown Hall, room 223. But the point of Ephesians 1-4 is that God the Father's choice preceded your choice that God the Father's choice preceded my choice so what did God do God the Father chose to set his love on us to set his love on us and elected us to be saved according to his gracious purpose and his sovereign will okay now when did God do it that's our second question when did God do it so look again at verse 4 we'll add a few more words to the sentence even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay, do you hear what this verse says? You try to wrap your mind around this. That God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. You put it this way, Christian, God the Father chose you to be saved in Christ before the foundation of the world. Or put another way, the Bible teaches here in Ephesians 1 and in many other places that there was an agreement or a covenant between the persons of the Holy Trinity in eternity past. And theologians call this covenant the, the covenant of redemption. And the covenant of redemption is the eternal, pre-temporal, before the creation of the world, intra-Trinitarian agreement among Father, Son, Holy Spirit 
to plan and execute the redemption of God's people. See, God the Father authored this plan of redemption in eternity past. And he chose a people, the elect. He chose a people, the elect, and God the Father gave God the Son the charge to save them, to save the elect, to save his people. And a summary of God the Son's role in this covenant of redemption is that first, God the Son was to take on human flesh by being born as a baby by the Virgin Mary. And he, God the Son, was chosen to be the second Adam, to succeed where the first Adam fell, and thus chosen in love by God the Father to and for the humiliation that Jesus would endure to save all those on whom God had set his electing love. The second, Jesus, God the Son, was to place himself under the law and to fulfill the covenant demand of perfect obedience as he grew up and lived the perfect, sinless, righteous life. And then he died the sacrificial, atoning death on Calvary's cross to bear the full guilt of his people's sin and so that his righteousness could be imputed to all those who were saved. And then Jesus, God the Son, was to rise from the grave and ascend back to God the Father's right hand in heaven, and then send the Holy Spirit to apply this salvation, this eternal life through new birth into saving faith, through which his people, God's elect from all nations, would be saved by grace alone. And God the Father promised to give God the Son a people, the elect, in reward for his accomplished work of redemption. And that's what Jesus has in mind in John 6, verses 37 to 39. Listen to what Jesus says. All that the Father gives me will come to me. He's talking about all the elect, those chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world and given to the Son for the Son to save. And the Son saves them through his life, death, and resurrection, and he saves every one of them. He doesn't lose a single one. Listen to what Jesus says. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, because the only way that anyone would ever come to Christ for salvation is because God has chosen them. Because God saves them. Because he makes them alive in Christ. Because apart from God doing that, as we'll get to in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So God the Father chose a people before the foundation of the world, and he gave those elect people to God the Son to be saved. And God the Son came, took on human flesh, lived, died, rose from the grave to save God's elect. Those chosen in love before the foundation of the world. And we don't have time to go to every passage where Jesus talks about this, but I'll I'll direct you to one place. Okay, you may not have heard about it. It's in the Gospel of John. And um, it's uh, that was a joke because you guys know about John pretty well. It's in John 17. You go to John 17 in the high priestly prayer and listen to what Jesus prays and for whom he prays. And you'll see that he has in mind those people chosen, given to him to save, those he saves. But look back at Ephesians 1 verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And as it is said, timing is everything. So think about this timing. 
before the foundation of the world. John Calvin says the very time when the election took place proves it to be free. For what could we have deserved or what merit did we possess before the world was made? You see, dear Christian, your salvation is because of God's grace and his grace alone. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't do anything to to earn it. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon puts it. God certainly must have chosen me before I came into this world, or he never would have done so afterwards. That's not just true of Spurgeon, it's true of that's true of me, it's true of you. Let's be honest. Listen to this quote. It's a long quote, but it's it's very helpful, very pastoral from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, God's grace is so gracious that he had us in view before we came to faith. Even before we were born, even before the world was created. If we ask, why did he choose me? The only answer is, he loved you. If we ask, yes, but why did he love me? The only answer is, because he loved you and planned to bring glory to his grace in and through you. But surely there must be some other reason. What was there about me that made him love me? Did he see that I was the kind of person who would trust him? No. How muddle-headed such an idea is. I am the kind of person who is dead in sins. And that's what we'll get to in Ephesians 2, verse 1. I am the kind of person who is dead in sins, without hope, at enmity with God. There is nothing in me that makes God love me. The reason for his love lies in himself. It is grace from start to finish. Nothing but sheer grace. God loved me before I loved him. Before I trusted in his son. Even before his son came. Even before the creation of the world. Can his love for me be that big, that long, that deep? Yes, indeed. And if it is rooted in eternity, which it is, it will also last for eternity. And so, Christian, do you see that before the foundation of the world, God set his love on you? Before you were born, God set his love on you. Your decision to love God and to love Jesus as your Savior is because of God's prior electing sovereign love for you. That God did not choose to save you and choose to love you because of something you would do or something you did do. No, you chose to trust in Jesus and to believe the gospel because God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. That you chose him but only because of his free, sovereign, gracious choice that preceded yours. Okay, so that's what God did. That's when he did it. Well, why did God do it? So look at the rest of the sentence, Ephesians 1, 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So do you see, you know, do you see there's a clear end goal, a clear purpose for God's election of us before the foundation of the world? And the, the end goal of our election is that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, Sinclair Ferguson has a very clear statement here. He says, we are certainly not chosen because we are holy, but we are chosen in order to become holy. See, this end goal of our election says something about our position in Christ now and what we ought to pursue with our lives. It says something about our position and what we ought to pursue. Okay, or, or to use theological terms, it says something about our justification and our sanctification. 
So our position and what we ought to be pursuing. And so first it says something about our position in Christ. You see, through our union with Christ, we, rebellious sinners, have been made holy and blameless before him. That Jesus died on Calvary's cross for our sins, and through our union with Christ, we are forgiven. Through our union with Christ, our sin debt is canceled. Through our union with Christ, our sins have been washed away. Jesus lived a perfect life, fulfilling all the demands of righteousness, and through our union with Christ, we are justified, and we're clothed in his robes of righteousness. That's our position. We're justified. And our Westminster Shorter Catechism gives us a great definition of justification, that it's an act, an act happens all at once. God does it. It's an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. This is our position in Christ, through our union with Christ, that we are holy and blameless before him, that we've been justified because of Christ's life, because of Christ's death. And so look again at Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and notice that word that, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That, it, it emphasizes that that is not because of our choice. That is not because of what we've done. That is because of God's choice before the foundation of the world. That he saved us. He justified us. Okay, so that's our position. Now, what about our pursuit that we're now in Christ? Well, because of this new position that we have been justified, that we're now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says we've been born again to walk in newness of life, that the old man, the old woman, that old life is, is gone. It's dead and buried. We're now walking in newness of life. And so our new pursuit is to pursue holiness. It's to pursue sanctification. Not so that we can earn this position, but because we have this position. And because this is who we are now, now we are to live differently. And to, to pursue holiness. To pursue sanctification. Where our justification is an act of God's free grace. God does it once and for all. We're justified our Westminster Shorter Catechism's definition of sanctification says it's a work, an ongoing work of God's free grace. It says sanctification is a work of God's free grace that lasts for our whole life here on earth. It's a work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. It's an ongoing work by the Holy Spirit using God's word in our lives to enable us, to empower us more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So we're certainly not chosen because we are holy, but we are chosen in order to become holy, to pursue holiness. And so please hear me clearly on this. We never pursue holiness to get God to love us. We never pursue holiness to earn forgiveness, to earn acceptance with God to earn his love. We never pursue holiness to feel like, okay, now I'm finally deserving of my salvation. I mean, look at all I've done. Look at all the, the choices I've made. Look at how I've changed my life. You know, surely God is now 
Now he's really proud of me. Now he's really excited that I'm on his team. That's not what we pursue holiness. See, no, before the foundation of the world, God has chosen to set his love on us, to save us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Son. And God has given us the Holy Spirit to enable us, to empower us, to more and more to die unto sin and to more and more live unto righteousness. Therefore, we never pursue holiness to get God to love us. Rather, because we are loved by God the Father, because we are saved by God the Son, because we are indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we desire to pursue holiness because that is who we are now in Christ. Because of this position, we now have a new pursuit. And that's exactly what Paul teaches in Ephesians. See, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, those three chapters, we're going to spend a lot of time in them, are all about our position in Christ, our justification, our new identity in Christ, what God has done for us, who he has made us to be. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 focus more on this pursuit of holiness, this saint, pursuit of sanctification. That because our old life is gone and a new life has come, how do we to live now? We, we, we've been called to a new way of life. Now, what is that new way of life? I mean, listen to how Ephesians chapter 4 begins. We're going to get there eventually. It says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You've got a new calling. Now walk in it. You've got a new position that leads to a new pursuit. So he listened again to Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And now I don't want us to run by this too fast and miss that final phrase, before him. On the one hand, one day we will stand before him. We will stand glorified and free from sin's penalty, power, and presence before our God. And what, a, what an incredibly wonderful thought that is. But on the other hand, it's also important for us to realize that we here in this life, here on this earth, we live every moment of every day before him now. That we live our lives ever before the gaze of our heavenly father. And so what an incredible dual motivation to pursue holiness. That we've already been chosen, loved by God, given this new position and now we are to, to live our lives before him, before his gaze, not just remembering our position, but remembering that we have this new pursuit to pursue holiness and sanctification, empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit, this work of grace, work of God's grace, ongoing work of grace in our lives. Okay, so here's our last heading then. Why does this matter? I mean, of course it matters because it's true, because it's God's word. Okay, but, but why does it practically matter why should you care about it this next week wednesday afternoon at 2 30 well understanding our election it makes us humble see we were not chosen because we are special or superior we're not chosen because we are you know choice grade we're not chosen by god for salvation because of any merit in us rather in spite of our utter unworthiness and our sin we were chosen by God before the foundation of the world, not because of anything special or superior in us, but because of God's sheer mercy, grace, and love. 
And that should humble us. That should not puff us up. Listen to what Paul writes in Titus 3, verse 5. This is a good memory verse. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Second, understanding our election promotes evangelism. See, the only way that I can do what I do is because I believe in the biblical doctrine of election. The only way that I can sit across from someone and share my faith with them, share the gospel with them, the only way I can stand up here week after week before you, hundreds of people. And some of you guys, I don't know some of you guys. And some of you have pretty hard faces. I got no idea what you're thinking. I got no idea, you know, if it's even making it in one ear, much less in one ear out the other. There's no way I could do what I do. There's no way I could do this if I did not believe that God had chosen a people for himself before the foundation of the world. And he sent Jesus to live, die, and rise from the grave to save them. That's why I enter every, every counseling session, every, every new conversation with, with someone who's new to our church asking me questions, every time I meet a new neighbor, every time I preach in here, every time I preach a wedding somewhere else or a funeral somewhere else, anytime I'm, I'm teaching or preaching, sharing God's word, this doctrine of election is the reason why I do it. Because I believe this is true, and that's why I pray the way I pray. Because I believe that God can and he does save his people. That he opens eyes, he opens ears, he changes hearts. That's the way I preach the way I preach because I believe that God uses his word. And he uses his spirit. And he draws people to himself. And there's no other way for anyone to be saved unless God has chosen them and God saves them. And the means by which he does this are these ordinary means of grace. His prayer, it's prayer, it's his word, it's the sacraments. And that's why I'm able to do what I do. And apart from this, I couldn't do it. If I thought it all depended upon me, I mean, I want to try to persuade you. You guys know I try as hard as I can, as passionately as I can to persuade you. But if I thought it only depended on me and on my power of persuasion, I'm not sure I'd make it a month. But this doctrine of election, if we understand it, it should fuel our prayers should fuel our prayers for the lost. It should fuel our personal evangelism. It should fuel, it should, it should strengthen our trust, our confidence in the faithful preaching of God's word and the faithful and right administration of the sacraments. Okay, and one last thing. Understanding our election gives us assurance of salvation. You see, the Bible makes it clear there's a difference between a right and healthy assurance of salvation and dangerous presumption. You see, thinking that you're saved because of your good works, thinking you're saved because of your best efforts, thinking you're saved because of your religious activity, because you've been baptized, because you've joined a church, apart from faith in Christ is presumption and not assurance. The doctrine of election tells us that we're not saved by believing we are elect. Rather, we know we are elect because we have faith in Christ. See, sometimes somebody will ask me, Richard, okay, I hear all of this, but how do I know if I'm one of the elect? 
How do I know if I've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world? And my answer is, well, do you want to be? Do you want to be? I mean, do you, do you believe that you are a sinner in need of a Savior? And do you believe that Jesus is the Savior you need? I mean, do you love and trust Christ? Are you trusting in his life, death, and resurrection as the only hope for your salvation? Because if you are, you would never, ever trust or believe in any of that. You would never choose to believe in any of this apart from God's choice preceding yours before the foundation of the world. The doctrine of election tells us that we are not saved by believing we are elect. Rather, we know that we are elect because we have faith in Christ. An election tells us that it was God who chose us before the foundation of the world. That he chose us. That he saved us. That he sought us long before we sought him. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 30. In those whom he predestined, he also called. In those whom he called, he also justified. In those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see it's the same group of people all throughout? This is not a shrinking kind of funnel of humanity. But all of those he predestined, all of those he chose, he glorifies. All of those he chose, Jesus saves. They make it all the way home. The assurance of your salvation comes from knowing that he who chose you and called you and justified you by the shed blood of Jesus Christ will also bring you all of the way home to spend eternity with your triune God in heaven. And then then one, one last verse. It's a good one. John 10, verse 29. Jesus says, My Father who has given them to me. He's speaking, the them are his sheep, his people, the elect, chosen by God the Father before the foundation of the world. Jesus says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Do you understand what that means? That God the Father who chose you, dear Christian, before the foundation of the world, he chose you. He sent his son to save you. He holds you in his hand. No one can snatch you out of his hand. You know, the illustration I always use with this verse, and I can't think of a better one, is whenever I go down to the big H-E-B at Bunker Hill, you guys know I'm talking about, this eighth wonder of the world that's there. And I go there, and the parking lot is so packed, and if I'm there with my youngest daughter, Elizabeth, I get out of the car, and I say, okay, sweetheart, come here. I want you to hold my hand. I want you to hold my hand tight and not let go because there's a lot of cars here. Somebody might not see you. I don't want you to get hurt. You hold my hand tight. But you guys know that her safety, her security has nothing to do with her grip on my hand. It has everything to do with my grip on her hand. That's Jesus' point. That's how the doctrine of election gives assurance for God's people. You see, dear Christian, all of this means that God loved you. He loved you before you loved him. 
He loved you before you trusted in his son. He loved you even before his son came. He loved you even before the creation of the world. And can this, his love for you be that big and that long and that high and that deep? The Bible says, yes, indeed. And if it is rooted in eternity, which it is, it will also last for eternity, which it does. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the truth of your word. We have considered some very deep things this morning. Father, we pray, we ask that you would please write these truths upon our hearts. That we we may believe, we may dwell upon, we may trust this truth. That you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before you. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.